I want to invite you to turn to a familiar passage to many. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to take a little different tack this morning, but just by way of review, I ask you to read the first two verses with me. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter begins this letter, as we have suggested in the past, Peter begins this letter with this great salutation, this great greeting. The question is, why does he begin it this way? Why does Peter begin his letter this way, and speaking to them as God's elect, chosen by God, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? Why does he initiate the letter using those uh, ideas, those concepts, those perspectives? Anybody? Was it, Theo? To encourage them. Do they need encouraging? Yeah, yeah look at verse 6. They are encountering uh, trials of all kinds. They're suffering in all kinds of trials. If you've been with us in these past several weeks as we've begun to study through these verses, we know that these people are incurring the wrath and persecution of, in effect, the Roman Empire. It started in Rome. Uh, these early Christians were accused, uh, indeed, for uh, the burning of Rome itself by Nero. And uh, that persecution, beginning in Rome, spread out throughout the provinces of Rome. And many of these people uh, were, were fleeing for their lives, settling in outlying districts. Uh, the uh, governors and so forth and the people in the outlying districts, word spreads fast. And uh, persecution, if you had any problem, you could blame it on these Christians. And they were uh, the, the, the choice scapegoats, if you will. And so they were encountering all sorts of trials. Might you, if you were in that situation, might you uh, begin to wonder, why me? Might you be, be concerned and, and why, are, why are you suffering? You know, you're, you're, you're just serving God. You're, you're believing in Jesus. Why is this all this happening to me? And especially if you prayed and there seems to be no relief, might you be discouraged? Sure. All of us. <clears throat> in this life, you and I are not suffering what these people suffered. They suffered, in many cases, deprivation of their own lives, their own livelihoods, lost members of their families, uh, had to flee for their lives, for safety. You and I live very comfortable lives, don't we, as Christians? Though we live in a fallen world and though we still have fallen bodies, though we are suffer disease and death and, and uh, disappointment and discouragement along the way, uh, nonetheless, we do still suffer, but not like these folks did. They needed a great deal of encouragement. They needed strengthening so that they could stay the course. There had to be times in their life when, when in the face of all that they were enduring, uh, they would wonder, in fact, where is God? Has God given up on us? It's not always the fact that we've done something wrong, that we're persecuted and suffering. That's an important distinction for us to make. So Peter is writing to encourage them in the midst 
of the grief that they're experiencing in all kinds of trials. It's a source of encouragement. It's a source of encouragement to be reminded of who you are and whose you are. Who are they? They're believers. They're foreigners. Whose are they? They are God's. They're God's chosen ones. They're God's elect, scattered throughout the the Roman Empire, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Beloved, does God know what's happening? Does He have it under control? Sure. See, we're sitting in a nice controlled environment here. It's easy for us to say it. But you get out there in day-to-day life, when you're not around each other, when things look crazy, when things don't make sense, when it looks like there's going to be a real uh, problem develop in your life and you have no resource to deal with it. Things look out of control. Sometimes it's not quite so easy to be logical and rational about it. We tend to get somewhat emotional about those things, don't we? God knows what's happening. He's saying to his people, he says, he's not abandoned you. You're his. According to his foreknowledge, he's chosen you. Be encouraged. Be strengthened. He's not abandoned you. He has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for you. And is a purpose for what you are experiencing. Indeed, He has designed it. He has ordained it. Now right there, people go, boop, 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 lights go off. Ah, wait, I mean, God has ordained this for me, this, this circumstance that I'm going through, this thing I have to contend with, this horrible trial in my life. God has ordained it. Yes, He's prepared it before the creation of the world. He knows what he's doing. You're not alone. He has a purpose for you, Christy. He has a purpose for what you're going through. You know that. He's a great God. He says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Trust me. Trust me. Oh, therein lies the tension, huh? Ooh. (laughs) I want to take matters into my own hands. Trust me. He writes to encourage them. He writes to strengthen them. That they might know who they are. And whose they are. That's why he can say, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Because you know who you are. You know whose you are. You know that your God is sovereign. Your God has everything under control. Your God has a plan and purpose. And how it all works out, only He knows. You can rest in that knowledge. So, as we've been studying this doctrine of election, I want to rehearse what I've said in the past, and I will continue to say to you and exhort you to begin to grasp this. The doctrine of election is not 
given in the Bible. God doesn't reveal it to us. He doesn't pull back the curtain on eternity and give us a glimpse into what is what for the reason to confuse us. He's given us this great doctrine. One of the greatest and most powerful, most wonderful doctrines in the Bible. He's given it to us to comfort us and to encourage us and to strengthen us. Who live also in an alien environment. Why is he giving us this doctrine? Why does he tell us about it? So we can be comforted. We can be encouraged. We can be strengthened in the face of of a world that is opposed to us. We may not be the choice of the world, but we are whose choice? God's choice. World, bring it on. Bring it on. I'm God's choice. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Turn to Romans chapter 8. I want you to see this passage. Romans chapter 8 with me. Page 1156. I want to begin at verse 29. Verse 29. For those God foreknew, He also predestined. What did He predestine them for? To be conformed to the likeness of His Son. That harkens back to Genesis chapter 1 when God said, I'd make man in my image. We shall make man in our image. We're made in God's image. And you know what? Sin has distorted the image. Sin has defaced the image. And God's in the process of restoring the image. And Jesus is the exact reflection of the image of God, we're told by the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1. So he's restoring the image that he originally built into us. So that he, meaning Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is our big brother, if I can say that. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also what? Glorified. Did he lose any along the way? Doesn't seem like it. What then shall we say in response to this? What conclusion shall we come to, if that's true? The conclusion is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? We belong to Him. We belong to Him. He's, he's our Father. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all Things. What do you need in the midst of what you're going through? God will provide it. He gives grace to those who are in need. And who will bring? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Woo! Don't you like that? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. The buck stops with him. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, not to condemn us, but what? To intercede for us. So even when the accuser of the brethren has access to the throne of God, as in the book of Job, and he comes before God, and he says, God, this Theo, have you, have you taken note of his life this past week? 
He's lived it rather sloppily. How long have I been with you? You know Theo. Oh, yeah. He is my brother. I know. Mine too. So when the enemy comes to accuse... Jesus. Thank God. Jesus. That's right. Thank God. Jesus says, He's mine, covered in my blood. Amen. Amen. Even when we've fallen short. Even when we've fallen short intentionally. Who's going to accuse us? Not Jesus. Jesus says, No, this is mine. This one is mine. He's covered in my blood. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? I'll speak to you after the service. Or what shall separate us from the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. These words could be read to those disciples that Peter's writing to, couldn't they? All the trials, all the persecution, all the suffering. What's going to separate you? Who can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? He says, indeed, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Our, our mentality, our attitude, in, indeed, is, Lord, we are yours for your purpose. We are committed to dying to ourselves. We are considered as sheep for the slaughter. Hallelujah. He says, no, 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 no. In all these things, we are huper nikomen. That's the Greek for super Nikes. <laughs> and not the shoes. The missiles, Nike missiles. Huper nikomen, more than conquerors. How can you be a more than conqueror? That's what we are. He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Somebody say hallelujah. Man, is that, is that, is that, can you follow up by saying grace and peace be to you, be to you in abundance? God is on the throne. He's on the move. He's doing his thing. Don't worry. Don't freak. No matter what you're going through, I know you're tempted to. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. You trust him. You trust him. Don't lean on your own understanding. 
Beloved, we are not the world's choice anymore, but we are God's choice. Even if the world be against us, God, God, who created the world, is for us. And he does the vindication. Amen? Amen. All right. So we understand. It's very important for you to understand why Peter talks about election, why he talks about the people being chosen. It's important for us to contextualize this teaching They are suffering. They need encouragement. They need strengthening. You and I, in the midst of trials and suffering, need to be reminded who we are and whose we are. And though the world be arrayed against us, though all of our circumstances may seem desperate, God has everything under control. He has chosen us, and we are firmly in His hand. Now, I don't know, if that doesn't encourage you and that doesn't strengthen you, something is wrong. Something is wrong. So again, as we've been studying this doctrine of election, it is given to us not to confuse us. It is given to us, beloved, to comfort us, to encourage us, and to strengthen us. Now, some questions arise. And you've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Patient with me. I appreciate that. I'm going to begin to address the questions, okay? And we're going to look at the first big question this morning. You'll notice, what is the title of my message this morning? Why bother, bother, right? That's the big question. People are going around saying, well, he's teaching elections. He's teaching the word chosen. And if he's teaching that stuff, why bother pray? Why bother witness? Why are we having this stupid play? Why are we writing fish on the walls? Well, I'm going to tell you why this morning. Okay? Why we're going to bother. The Bible clearly teaches, we've seen this, that God has chosen some. Hasn't he? Doesn't it teach that? Okay, we can't deny that. All right. So if God has chosen some, he's chosen some, why then pray? Why then evangelize? Write this down. Write this down, please. Election does not affect our responsibilities. Election does not affect our responsibilities. God has pulled the curtain on eternity back a little bit. He gives us a little bit of visibility from his side of what has happened. We get that for encouragement and strengthening so we don't freak out in this life in the midst of our circumstances. And now he pulls the curtain back and he says, all right, now this is going to go. I'm going to give you your instructions. This is what you do. These are your responsibilities. Are you with me? All right. Now, first of all, we don't know who the elect are. True? I mean, we don't go, and and God hasn't pinned little buttons behind our collars and said, oh, they're going to elect one here. (laughs) We don't know who the elect are. That's hidden in the counsels of God. That's just hidden in the counsels of God. That's up to Him. That's not our concern. Say that with me. That's not our concern, who the elect are. So we don't know who the elect are. That's not our concern. Secondly, we are commanded to go. Are we not? We are commanded to go. And we are exhorted to pray. Isn't that true? The church is described by the metaphor of a body, isn't it? 
The Apostle Paul, in a number of places, describes the church, and he uses the metaphor of a body. He says in Romans chapter 12, So in Christ, we who are many form what? One body. We are now, along with all the true Christians around the world, we comprise what's known as the body of Christ, the true believing church. Jesus told his disciples before he died, he said, you will do the things that I do and you will do greater things. Now, what's our job? To do what Jesus did. The father said to him, what? Go. He went. Right? Did he pray? Yes. So we know that we are the body of Christ, or at least part of the body of Christ. We have been given a ministry, the Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we've been given a ministry of what? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, thank you. Verses 18 through 20, we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. Paul explains that, that God is in us reconciling the world to himself. Now was, if I can use this, if I can go back, Jesus, you got the picture of Jesus? God in the flesh? Is God in the flesh now? Where? In the church. That's right. All right. So God was in the flesh, in the person of Jesus the Christ, reconciling the world to himself. He does the work on the cross to make all that reconciliation possible. He goes away and he says, I'll send my spirit. He will be in you. And now we are the body of Christ. We are here to do the works that Jesus did. And we have been given a great commission, have we not? A great commission. Matthew chapter 28. Go into all the world, he says. Go. Go. Make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them everything I've commanded you. Go. That's called the great commission. So we've been commanded to go. We're exhorted to pray. Now, given that, I want to call your attention to Acts chapter 1. If you'll turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. I want us to track now the church in fulfilling what Jesus said to do. And I want us to see what happened and then where we fit in. Especially in the context of this issue of election. Acts chapter 1 Luke records, this is after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He appears to his disciples and he tells them to go to Jerusalem. Now, they, they had a meeting up in Galilee, remember? He said, I'll meet you in Galilee. So they all waited, went up to Galilee meet him. He appears to them in Galilee by the sea, cooks breakfast for them, remember? Then he says, all right, now go to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the gift that my Father has promised, the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The implication is, these guys needed power. You and I need power. You can't live the Christian life as God intended for you to live it without the power of God to live it. 
People are saying, well, I just make a choice. No, you need God in you and God empowering you. We'll see this next week. We talk about the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to where? The ends of the earth. Now, once they had received power, once the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, once they had received power, they were not to go to, to, to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth until Jerusalem had been evangelized. That's important for us to understand. So Jesus spelled out his strategy, first Jerusalem, and then fan out to the ends of the earth. Do you remember, anybody remember the old TV show um, Bonanza? You remember the map the show would start with? And that little flame, and then all of a sudden we just spread outward and outward. That's the gospel. That's, how, that's, that's a picture of how the gospel is supposed to spread. Starts in Jerusalem. Now, I can imagine Peter. Now think with me about Peter. <clears throat> I can imagine Peter fighting the urge back to suggest to Jesus a change of venue. This is important to understand. I can imagine Peter wanting to say, look, Jesus, please, Lord, what about beginning at the ends of the earth and slowly working back to Jerusalem? Now, why do you think he would say that? Because Jerusalem is not exactly the most comfortable person to evan- place to evangelize right now. Things are hot there. Look, Jesus, can't we, can't we start out there where no one knows what's happened here? And by the time we work our way back to Jerusalem, maybe things would have calmed down some. Isn't that how we work? We want to work in a safe environment. We want the, the sure thing. Now, there's some logic to that way of thinking. Let me explain to you what Jerusalem was all about. Let me explain to you something of the odds against those early disciples in Jerusalem of evangelizing that entire city. Jerusalem was not the easiest place to evangelize. Indeed, it was probably the most difficult city in which to start a new religion. And remember, Jesus, Jesus was killed there publicly as a common criminal, wasn't he? And the crowds largely, uh, this was a popular verdict. It wasn't just a small group of people said crucify him. The, this was a popular verdict throughout the whole city of Jerusalem. The whole city said crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Peter, Jesus' most enthusiastic follower, had publicly denied him. His treasurer, his administrator, Judas, had betrayed him and sold him for a few pieces of silver. This is public knowledge. Public knowledge. The rest of his disciples are confused and in hiding. If a search were to be made amongst Jesus' closest associates, we would be hard-pressed to turn up somebody who uh, had the potential for some kind of church leadership at this particular point. They're all scattered. 
It doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. Hard copy. You know that profound investigative TV show? <laughs> investigative reporters, they would have had a field day exposing the flaws and the character of those first members of Christianity, wouldn't they? Jerusalem was already, already had a well-established religion. You couldn't break into it. You couldn't break into it. It was powerfully and uh, irretrievably intertwined with the state. It was impossible to be a member of the Jewish nation without first being a member of the official state religion. You couldn't do anything. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't have any influence. You couldn't do any business. Nothing unless you were a Jew first and then you could conduct business. The Jewish ruling council had powerful connections with the occupying Roman army. And the occupying Roman army even had exhibited nothing but contempt for Jesus. After all, they were the ones that whipped him. They were the ones that nailed him to the cross. The disciples' most convincing argument to support their testimony, to support their witness, was what? What was their most convincing argument? It was the resurrection of Jesus, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. But even that was denied. Even that rumor was spread that that in itself was a ruse. And the, the, the Jewish leadership, along with the Roman armies, Roman soldiers, spread the story that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Rather, his disciples had stolen the body and hidden it. So even their most powerful argument was undermined and was accepted by the majority of the people in Jerusalem. And finally, this small band of Jesus' disciples, this small group of disciples who received this great commission with specific instructions to begin in Jerusalem. They had absolutely no political, economic, or social clout. They, they had nothing. They had nothing. No connections. You know, it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? They had nothing. They had no clout. And finally, they were looked down upon by the establishment as ignorant and unlearned men. And Jerusalem prided itself in its intellectualism. And indeed, uh, these disciples were discredited by one of the most popular put-downs of the day. Can anything good come out of Galilee? Do you remember that? So I'm going to suggest to you, Jerusalem was not exactly the best place to start. And I suspect that Peter had that on his mind, thinking, you know, if we could just start out there and finally work our way back to Jerusalem and, and maybe when things calm down. Humanly speaking, the disciples' chances of success in Jerusalem were absolutely non-existent. Can you see that? But that's precisely what Jesus wants. That's precisely what we face. Humanly speaking, the things that God calls us to do are practically impossible. That's why we need Him. That's why we need His power. This is glorious. Absolutely glorious. So, the stage is set. They're supposed to start in Jerusalem. Turn to Acts chapter 5. Are you with me? Are you tracking with me? Yeah. 
All right, Acts chapter 5, look at verse 28. This is now within just a few weeks. And the apostles are dragged in front of the Sanhedrin. They are being told not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. But of course, they can't not do that, right? Now look at what they say. Verse 28. Here's the Sanhedrin. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, this is the high priest. Yet you have what? Filled Jerusalem. <laughs> you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. They've what? Filled Jerusalem with this teaching. In just a few short weeks. How could this possibly happen? How could this possibly happen? They did it house by house by house by house by house. Now turn over to Acts chapter 8. Have you ever done a, a good job and then sat down and rested? Said, attaboy, attaboy, attaboy. <laughs> they had, within a few weeks, successfully evangelized all of Jerusalem. Now it's time to enjoy the fruit of their labors. Remember, thousands of people, if you read the account, thousands of people were added to the church. Daily, people were joining the church. They were enjoying the favor of everybody, says Luke. Wow, it sounds wonderful. Let's just enjoy this. Let's luxuriate in what God has done here in Jerusalem. Oh, this is wonderful. Everybody's loving us. Would you want to leave that environment? Would you? No, we'd want to kind of hang out, wouldn't we? What did God tell them? After Jerusalem, then what? Judea and Samaria. But they're not moving. So God has to bring persecution. God brings persecution to move them out. To kick them out of the nest. Ever heard that? Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day... This is the, the, the transition of the church now out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout where? Judea and Samaria. Where were they supposed to go? They were supposed to go to Judea and Samaria. God has a plan. He has a purpose. And he's going to get that plan and purpose worked out. And he has very unique ways of getting his plan and purpose worked out. Understand that. So it's the, the gospel spreading. It's spreading. God's moving. God's on the move. Now, turn to Acts chapter 11. The gospel rolls on into Antioch. Into Antioch. And look with me at verse 19. Acts chapter 11. It's on the move. The gospel's on the move. The good news is spreading. It's spreading like wildfire. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia... Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. The message was to only go to Jews. The gospel was for the Jew first, then the Gentile later. But look what happens. We have some zealous, eager, trigger-happy evangelists who can't contain themselves. This is exciting. The gospel gets out of control. <laughs> They forget. These guys forget. They're not supposed to speak to non-Jews. And so we read, 
Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch. Lord! Woo! My! And you see, now the church is growing in Antioch among the Gentiles. Prematurely, but it's growing. It's in Antioch, this is critical, it's in Antioch that you have the visibility that it's the gospel that overcomes racism and cultural prejudice. Was there racism and cultural prejudice between Jews and Gentiles? Big time. What overcame it? Legislation? Picketing? Social programs? What overcame it? The gospel. This is the first time in history in history where you have the walls of racism and cultural prejudice being torn down and it is God who is doing it and it's through His good news come to the Gentiles through Jewish evangelists. Can you get behind that? Isn't that glorious? Can we make a difference in this world? If we would. If we'd be full of the Holy Spirit Directed by the Holy Spirit, we can make an incredible difference in this world. That's what Jesus says. He says, go to the ends of the earth and tell them the good news. Good news. Now, meanwhile, chapter 9 records, don't turn there, but chapter 9 records the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, and he will later become Paul the Apostle, who we love and esteem highly. And it's Saul, when he gets saved, in chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, that he is invited by Barnabas to come to Antioch to help and train those Gentile believers. In other words, strengthen the church. Saul was well-versed in all of the Old Testament scriptures, and now God as Jesus has revealed himself to Paul, and now he's putting two and two together. He sees that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the statements, all the prophecies, all the history of the Old Testament, and now he's going to be invited to Antioch to strengthen the church in Antioch. Verses 25 and 26, you can read that on your own. Incidentally, the last part of verse 26 says, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That's a little church history for you. Okay, now flip over to chapter 13. In chapter 13, we see that the church at Antioch now is going to set apart Barnabas and Saul to this worldwide ministry. They are the ones who are going to be the first to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's the church at Antioch that sends them out. One of the places that Paul will go to, and he will establish the gospel is the metropolis of Ephesus in Asia Minor. That's, again, one of the cities that Peter has, well, has written to in the, in the district of Asia, uh, as we have seen earlier. And there's a tremendous parallel. I want you to see this parallel between what the few disciples in Ephesus deal with as, as the disciples in Jerusalem had to deal with. There are tremendous odds against those disciples in Jerusalem to get the gospel going there. And the ones in Ephesus had the same, same kinds of problems. Ephesus was a hotbed of paganism. It was a central city, a central location of the temple of Diana or Artemis. 
And this city was run by that organized pagan religion. Every aspect of the city dominate, was dominated by that cultic uh, religion. Every aspect of the, of the city was influenced. The politics were influenced. The economy was influenced. It was an extremely lucrative religion. And indeed, even the trade unions were influenced by this cult. The city itself of Ephesus got its identity from Artemis and from the temple there in the middle of the city. So Paul gets to Ephesus and he is meeting originally or initially he's meeting in the local synagogue there. And the leaders of the synagogue don't want him meeting in anymore so he has to go out and he has to rent a building. <laughs> That's what we do when we start a church. We go rent a building. So he's in rented quarters. And for two years, he teaches out of this rented building. And the rented building, this is, this is almost comical. The rented building is juxtaposed to the temple of Artemis. You've got this magnificent temple with the entire city streaming into it throughout the week doing all their cultic practices. This is the whole history of the city, the whole identity of the city is bound up in the temple. And you got this little tiny meeting room across the street. Isn't this great? Let's see what God does, shall we? Look at verse 10. Verse 10 of chapter 13. We're told... No, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 19. Forgive me, chapter 19. In the wrong place. I have to find chapter 19. Okay, verse 10. So he's preaching in this temple, Paul. This went on for two years, notice, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. The whole province of Asia was evangelized out of this little meeting space, the hall of Tyrannus. Next verse. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Woo, man, you talk about a power encounter. These people were experiencing power through, the, through demonic worship in that pagan temple. But now God is on the move and just... Aprons and napkins that just touch Paul are taken, laid on the sick, and they're healed. And demons are cast out. This is awesome stuff that's going on in Ephesus. Would that get your attention? Would you go, whoa, man, what's going on in that little meeting hall? What's going on in there? All the Jews and Gentiles who lived in the, Asia, the, the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Beloved, how do you think? Well, wait, 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 turn the page. I want you to see verses 18 through 20. 18 through 20. This is, this is incredible. This is even, even a, a more powerful, if I can say this, power encounter. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. When was the last time you heard somebody become a believer and openly confess their evil deeds? Man, these people, were, these people were, were, were committed. These people were convicted. These people, they wanted to confess their sins because they wanted to get as far away as they could. You know, if you continue to hold your sins in secret, they still have a grip on you. Confess them. Get them out there in the open. 
So now everybody knows. Who cares? Well, I don't want people to think bad of me. They already think bad of you. It doesn't matter. Confess it. Get it out there in the open. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their CDs, their music videos, their psychology books, and burned them publicly. Oh, did I misread that? I'm sorry. Well, I can't, I can't throw all that stuff away. It costs so much money. I've made such an investment. Ooh. When they calculated the value of all the stuff, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. If you look at your footnote, a drachma was a day's wage. It came to 50,000 days wages. You throw it away. You burn it. You break it. You get rid of it. I want nothing to connect me with that old life. I want to be free. Jesus came that I should be free, and free I will be. But I must cut off all of those previous connections. And these things had particular power over their lives. Amen? Do you see that? So exciting things are going on. Now, how, let me ask you this question. How did the early church manage to take the gospel from that upper room in Jerusalem... To the ends of the earth, as we have seen in this brief survey. How did they manage to do that? The Bible doesn't give us, if you read the Bible, the Bible doesn't give us a specific methodology that they used. But it does give us some principles. I want you to go back to chapter 2 of the book of Acts. Turn back to chapter 2, and I want you to look at verse 42. And we look at verse 42, we are going to see Luke records for us four things that are characteristic of that early church. What are they? What's the first one? The apostles' teaching. What's the second one? The fellowship. What's the third one? Breaking of bread or communion, the Lord's table. What's the fourth one? Prayer. All right. So Luke identifies for us four dynamics, four things that characterize the life of the early church. Now I want you to notice, he says, they devoted themselves to these things, didn't they? Now write a question for yourself in the margin of your Bible. Am I devoted to these things? Am I devoted to these things? Am I devoted to these things? I think it's interesting when you look at that passage and we note those four elements. There is only one of the four that seems to reach beyond the group. Can you guess what that one element is? Prayer. Prayer. It's prayer. It's prayer. Studying doctrine, fellowshipping, breaking of bread, celebrating the Lord's table were ministries to the group. There were ministries to the group. In home meetings all over Jerusalem, just like our mini churches, in home meetings all over the city, groups of believers would gather together. They would enjoy each other's company. They would enjoy the fellowship. They would love one another. They would be in one accord. 
They're in one mind, in one heart, in one spirit, says Luke. They celebrated the Lord's Supper while they assimilated what the Holy Spirit taught them through the apostles' teaching. All of this while they're immersed in an atmosphere of dialogue with God. You see that? How do I pray? You always pray with your Bible open. You always pray with your Bible open. It's a dialogue. Prayer is a dialogue. It's not monologue. You first let God talk to you. And then you respond to what he said to you. Just like we talk with each other. Someone talks to you, says something to you, you respond to him. God speaks to us, we go, oh, 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 I didn't know that God. Oh, okay. Great. Thank you, God. Well, that's nice. Hallelujah. Praise God. You see? That's prayer. So may I suggest to you that they prayed. Can you imagine the beauty and the effectiveness of those prayers in that early church? James says an interesting thing in the fifth chapter of his letter, verse 16, the second part of the verse. He says this, the prayer of a righteous man is what? Powerful and effective. What's the qualification? Is there a qualification there? Righteous man. What does he mean by righteous? Well, we have Christ's righteousness uh, uh, credited to our account, don't we? So we have Christ's righteousness. But it also speaks of not just that, but also of a practical righteousness. Am I living in a righteous way? Or is my life clogged up with sin and foolishness? Peter says, uh, speaking to husbands, if they would live with their wives in an understanding way, uh, that would remove the hindrance to their prayers. Apparently there are things that hinder prayer. So the prayer of the righteous person, both positionally righteous in Christ and practically righteous in our day-to-day life, living as God calls us to live by His power, our prayers are powerful and effective. Let me give you an example of that. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Let me give you an example of one of the prayers of the early church. And note the power and effectiveness of this prayer. And this, I want to submit to you, is an illustration of how prayer moved the gospel. Chapter 4. Where am I? Verse 23. Now Peter and John have been imprisoned by the Sanhedrin for preaching Jesus. They weren't supposed to do it. They went and did it anyway and got in trouble. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, when the people heard this, they raised their voices together to God, to prayer in God. Now notice how they address God. Sovereign Lord. They acknowledge that He is sovereign. They acknowledge that He's sovereign. They appeal to His sovereignty. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Now they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. What a joke, right? Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Remember Acts 2.23? 
Now look at this. Look at this. So they've stated the case. They set the context. Now here comes the prayer homing in. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great, what? Boldness. Lord, empower us. Like on Pentecost, that we can speak your word with boldness, unintimidated, uninhibited. And stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Man, what a prayer. God, make us bold and touch some people. Do something. Wake them up. Get their attention, God. Verse 31. After they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Man, would you love to have been in that room? The place was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Is that not a powerful prayer? Look at the fruit of that prayer. And then you saw what happened. You saw the gospel spread powerfully, and Paul got saved, and to the ends of the earth, and to Ephesus, and so forth, and finally to us. Beloved, could it be, could it be, could it possibly be that prayer was the primary vehicle used to reach those cities and those provinces with the gospel. Prayer. Prayer. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here is the Apostle Paul instructing the church in how to pray. Isn't this great? Here's the greatest evangelist to ever live. Church planter par excellence. Teacher. Apostle. He's going to teach us how to pray. This is great. Read these verses with me. 1 through 8, chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. I urge them, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of everyone. Wow, who does he want us to pray for? Everyone. Everyone. All right, let's go on. He says, also on behalf of kings and all those in authority. Now let me give you three reasons why you want to pray for those in authority. For our political as well as ecclesiastical leaders. But especially those who, kings and those in temporal authority. First of all, we want to pray for them because of their influence on the quality of life in the city. Do they have an influence on the quality of life in the city that we live? Or in the community or in the country? Absolutely. Does President Clinton have influence on the quality of life in our country? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we want to pray for them for that reason. Secondly, we want to pray for them because of their lack of real influence in some areas. Because there's some things they have no power over and they can do nothing about. And no human solution is possible. We want to pray for them. And thirdly, we want to pray for our leaders because of the influence of demonic powers on them. The Bible teaches us that demonic powers attach themselves to temporal leaders. We want to pray for them, for their protection. Okay, so we're to pray for everyone, and especially those in authority. He says to us in the last part of verse 2, the outcome of these prayers should be so that we may live what kind of lives? Peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. 
peaceful and godly li- and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. I want to suggest to you there's only one way, there's only one way for us to live in an environment characterized that way. And there's only one way. And that way is for all these unbelievers or most of these unbelievers or many of these unbelievers to become believers. And those who don't become believers to be acquainted with the fear of God, and they become at least God-fearers. Do you understand? Would that make a difference? Would that make a difference? Would it make a difference in the gangs if most of them got saved? Or if, if some of them got saved, but, but most all of them became God-fearers? They feared God? Big time. Big time. That make a difference? He tells us in verse 6, it's to this end that Jesus has already made provision. Jesus has already made provision. His death is sufficient. Don't worry about it. There's enough grace for everybody. There's enough grace for those who will be saved. And though their sin is great, His grace is greater. Jesus has already made sufficient provision. So don't wonder, well, can he save that one? He can save anybody. Turn to look at verse 8. He says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in what? In prayer without anger or disputing. God, move, move. Lord, empower us that we can speak your word with boldness. Lord, make me bold and stretch forth your hand, O God, on people's lives. Give us an open door. That's how we pray. That's how we pray. Now, I want to call your attention to verse 4. We have to do a little aside here for a couple of minutes. Stay with me. Verse 4 poses a problem in the present context of our discussion on election. There's a companion verse in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Many of you are aware of that verse. Paul says here in verse 4, God, he tells us, uh, wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Does he say that? Yes. So what does he mean by that? Can we explain that away? Or what does it say? He wants all men, what? All men to be saved. All men to come to a knowledge of the truth. Okay. Now, there, some people try to explain it away, say all doesn't mean all, okay? Uh, I'm not so sure that that's a valid argument. But it does create a problem for us, doesn't it? Because we're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. It says there, God wants all men to come to be saved, but we've been seeing very clearly that the Scriptures also teach and God has chosen some to be saved from sin. Do we have a problem? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. How do we resolve it? There's many attempts to resolve it. I'm going to give you my solution. This works for me. Hopefully, it'll help you. There's a word, a peculiar word. Many of you have never heard of it. It's called antinomy. I'm going to define it for you. It's on the board. It's on the, it's on the screen. Antinomy. An antinomy is a fundamental, unresolvable conflict between two equally valid principles or truths. An antinomy is something where you have two complementary truths. They're complementary. They go to make up the whole. It's like a husband and a wife. They're complementary to each other. Two complementary truths which the human mind cannot reconcile. How do you, how do you understand a husband and a wife? <laughs> right? <laughs> how did we get put together? 
How do we match? How do we match? How do we fit? Beloved, I'm going to suggest to you there's some things that we can't fully understand. We want to. We try to. We work hard at it. We want to be good stewards. We want to be good theologians. We want to rightly divide the word of truth. But I'm going to suggest to you that as, as capable as we are in so many ways, and as we reason things out, our reason can only take us so far. We run into these things that I'm going to call antinomies. Antinomies. They're irreconcilable. Let me give you some examples of antinomies. One, and these are, these are things that I, I've struggled with, and I can't resolve them. I don't know if you can relate or not, but I'm just going to give them to you anyway. On the one hand, you have the creator, and the other hand, you have the creation. Right? Where did the creation come from? Is it part of the creator? Is, it, is the creation part of the creator? Is the creation part of the creator? Keith, is the creation part of the creator? No. Did the creator make the creation out of something that was external to him that, he are, that was already there? No. no. Where did the creation come from? Nothing. It came from nothing. God spoke to nothing. Nothing heard his voice. Became something. That's what happened. I can't figure it out. I'm used to making something out of something. God spoke. God said, let there be light. It was like, whoa, cool trick. How do you, how do you figure that out? I'm going to suggest that we can't figure it out. We can't reasonably, logically work our way through the whole thing. At some point we have to say, I believe God did that. Don't we? It's an issue of our faith. I'm going to suggest that that's an example of what I call antinomy. Let me give you another one. The book of Acts, in chapter 17, Paul is teaching and preaching. And in, in what he says, and this is a classic passage, it speaks to two things at the same time. It speaks first to the transcendency of God. God is transcendent. That means he's beyond our limits of knowledge, our limits of experience. He's beyond those things. He says, my ways are higher than your ways. And at the same time, in the same passage, it's, Paul speaks of God's imminence. How can God be transcendent and imminent at the same time? It's either you're one or the other. But they're both. He's both. He's both. It's, if I'm away, I'm away. Right? How can I be near if I'm away? Antinomy. Let me give you another one. Here's one that'll blow your mind. This has blown my mind ever since I've been a Christian. One God, three persons. I don't know how that works. There are huge theological tomes written just on the subject of the Trinity. No one has been able to figure it out. We all come to the same conclusion. I mean, I've read discussion after discussion after discussion. You come to the same conclusion. It all boils down, one God, three persons. I mean, we can draw analogies. You know, we say, well, it's kind of like this. You know, we, and we reduce God to our own little puny images. God says, make no images of me. Who? Don't reduce him to our images. 
But I'm just trying to understand. You can't understand it. And you reduce God, you reduce God, you reduce God. That's exactly what he says don't do. Here's another one. Christ is both perfect God and perfect man at the same time. Oh, go figure that one out. How can you be perfect God and perfect man at the same time? I don't know. He just is. Does the Bible teach that? Does the Bible teach that Jesus is God? Does the Bible teach that Jesus is man? Well, he can do that. He's God. And he's man. How? I don't know. Here's another one. This is a little bit more complicated. There is corporate solidarity... Corporate solidarity means this. Romans chapter 5, you read about it. It's that we are in Adam, and everything is true of Adam is true of us. Corporate solidarity. Paul says in chapter 5 of Romans, verse 12, when Adam sinned, all sinned. When Adam sinned, all sinned. But at the same time, I'm individually responsible. Wait a minute, I wasn't there. How can I be guilty? How can I be individually responsible? I wasn't there. He did it. No, when Adam sinned, you sinned. Whoa. Does the Bible teach corporate solidarity? Yeah. Because now when you become a Christian, you're no longer in Adam. You're in Christ. Very good. Very good. You're theologians. All right. So at the same time, the Bible teaches corporate solidarity and individual responsibility. Can't get away from it. Two complementary truths. Let me give you number six. And this is the one that's under consideration for our, for our purposes. We clearly read the Bible and we clearly see that God loves the world with a deep compassion, doesn't he? God so loved the world with a deep compassion that desires their salvation. Does the Bible teach that? Apparently it does. He wants all men to be saved. Wow. But the Bible also teaches, as we have been seeing... God has chosen some to be saved from sin. I want to pull my hair out. How can I reconcile those two things? You can't. They're complementary truths. They're an example of what I call antinomy. You can't reconcile them. They're like parallel tracks that run off into eternity. They never intersect. We want to intersect them. We want to, we want to tie them up, make a nice, neat package out of them. And everyone attempts to do that. And, and you can't satisfactorily do it because every time you try to do it, you run into some problem. So I'm going to suspend judgment. I'm going to suspend judgment. And I'm going to say this. When I'm asked to clarify, I'm going to say it this way. The Bible appears to teach... The Bible appears to teach. And I can't take it any further. I can't take it any further. All right, let me conclude with this. We're almost done. I'm holding you over, I know. Be patient, because now we're coming to the climax. You excited? Yes. Tell your neighbor, tell your neighbor. Oh, we're coming to the climax now. He's almost done. <laughs> All right, here we go, here we go, here we go. So what's our part? What's our part, given all that we've talked about this morning? Our part is to believe and to pray that others believe and to take the invitations out and deliver them. What's our part? Pray. Believe, pray that others 
our, our part is to believe, pray that others believe, and then take the invitations. We scatter the seed. We scatter the seed. Like Paul, listen, we take Paul's attitude upon ourselves. Paul says, imitate me, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, we are to do whatever we can. We are to do whatever we can for the sake of the elect. We don't know who they are. We're to do whatever we can for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. So, we pray. We pray. How shall we pray? How should we pray for the lost? How should we pray for the lost? Here's, let me give you a clue. Real simple. And we're close with this. Here's how we should pray for the lost. What do they need prayer for? Salvation. What do they need prayer for? Salvation. Salvation. Okay, let me, let, me, let me phrase it this way. What felt needs do they have? Now, we know that the ultimate need is salvation, right? So we want, we're going to pray for that, obviously. Remember the prayer of the early church in Acts chapter 4? Say, God, give us boldness, right? But stretch forth your hand and what? Meet the felt needs of these people. Open a door for us. Right? Is that what he says? All right. So we want to pray first for felt needs. So we go to our friend. We go to our neighbor. We go to our relative. We say, Patrick, our church is praying. Our church is on this, this, this big prayer crusade. And we're praying for friends and relatives and neighbors. And we're putting on this drama in April. And, we, and I want to invite you. But before you come, I want to pray for you. Before I even invite you, I want to pray for you. And we're all praying. You say, oh, that's nice. But, but I want to know, what specifically can I pray for you? If God... If I'm going to go to God and I'm going to ask Him on your behalf, what one thing most important in your life can I pray for that only God could do for you? What's that one thing? Wisdom. Give me something tangible. <laughs> Smart Alec. <laughs> you're non-safe. Think about non- you're a non-safe person. What are you concerned about? You're concerned about this life, right? My wife coming home. My marriage. All right, your marriage. Pray for my marriage. Pray that I can get my wife home so she's not a working wife. She can be at home mom. She can raise our kids at home. Uh, pray for, just pray that God would send them up. Okay, I'm going to pray for that. Now, Patrick, by the way, before I leave, before I go pray, I'm going to pray and ask God to do that. Now, if God does that, will you believe in Jesus Christ? Sure. Sure. <laughs> I have some friends this is, a, this is a recent example in, in my own life. This, I do this all the time. I have some friends who uh, have moved from here. They're part of our church, and they moved back to Australia. And uh, uh, just marvelous people, wonderful people. And uh, my wife and I don't get much time to socialize, but we, we managed to squeeze in some time and went over to their house for dinner one night. And um, Alan's brother showed up from Australia, totally unexpected. Do you remember this? Yeah. Totally unexpected. And, uh, and, and so, you know, he's part of the evening. We never expected him. They never expected him. And he's there. And he's only there for a short time. He's got a week, a week in L.A. And we talk. We get to know him. We find out that his family's falling apart. His business is going down the tubes. He's a mocker of spiritual things. 
And so he's telling us this long story. And we're listening, we're listening. And he's, I said, well, why are you here? He says, well, he says, I've invented a board game. I said, you've invented what? 